Hi and welcome to Displaced. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. This is a podcast that's a partnership between Vox Media and the International Rescue Committee where Grant and I work. Displaced is a podcast where we dive into the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises with foreign policymakers, innovators, and those on the front lines of addressing the global migration crisis. The Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, uh, commonly known as PRM, is in charge of developing and implementing resettlement and migration policy. This means working with foreign states to engineer a consensus around how refugees and migrants should be treated, ensuring that asylum cases are processed in a timely manner, and that refugees are resettled in the U.S. and placed with organizations here like the IRC. PRM is in charge of dispersing about $3 billion a year to agencies like the UN Refugee Agency, UNRWA, ICRC, and smaller NGOs focusing on assisting refugee crises. Beyond the immense amount of work you can do with $3 billion, PRM is unique in that it sits in the State Department, and as such it combines aid with diplomacy, which often means that PRM can have a direct and rapid impact on refugees' lives. In 2015, for example, PRM's overseas assistance programmes gave Secretary of State John Kerry the leverage he needed to persuade Kenya not to close a refugee camp hosting 350,000 Somalis who'd fled from their war-torn home country. And that's why we're lucky to have Anne Richard, who served as the head of PRM, as the Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees and Migration in the Obama administration from 2012 to 2017, to explain that architecture and what PRM does. Anne is one of the most thoughtful people on issues related to migration and refugees, having worked on them for the past two decades. And this is a really important moment to actually dive into the workings of PRM and US refugee policy. Since Donald Trump has assumed office, he sought to paralyse PRM. His administration has twice proposed dismantling the Bureau, splitting its functions and funding between USAID and the Department of Homeland Security. And so without further ado, here's Anne Richard. And Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to be here. So you served as the Assistant Secretary of State for Populations, Refugees, and Migration in the State Department, which is charged with developing and implementing resettlement and migration policy. So as a starting point, can you provide a framework for how somebody should understand the work PRM does? Well, the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration in the Department of State is a major uh, tool of the United States for engaging uh, around the world to respond to humanitarian crises. There's a $3.4 billion budget that's about half of the U.S. government's humanitarian budget. The other half is at the U.S. Agency for National Development, and they lead on natural disasters. uh, And then as the world has gotten more complex and crises have become very complex, It's uh, now much more of a requirement that the Refugee Bureau work very closely with the food aid experts and disaster experts, the disaster assistance response teams, the DART teams that AID sends out. So so, um, these two halves of the humanitarian coin in the U.S. uh, work very, very closely together. PRM, the Population Refugees and Migration Bureau, also has a responsibility then to conduct what we called humanitarian diplomacy, um, informing top foreign policy officials in the administration 
when they met with foreign governments about what um, the humanitarian needs were of people in those countries. Or uh, we would give them requests to deliver to other countries, that they let refugees across the border perhaps, or that they treat refugees better, or that they, if they were wealthy countries, that they uh, give more to UN and other uh, organizations uh, that were responding to crises around the world. So part of it was a diplomatic uh, task. Part of it was uh, being a major funder. Uh, part of the U.S. was the world's leading funder of humanitarian causes around the world. And then part of it was to bring refugees to the United States, a small fraction of the world's refugees, so that they could restart their lives. I think it's often easy to end up focusing on the aid and the big money that is doled out to provide life-saving aid. But in some ways, um, the diplomacy side could arguably be more important, particularly when the US does it. And I think it'd be quite interesting just to dwell on some examples of how diplomacy has been used uh, at PRM to put pressure on governments to respect international law or give rights to refugees to work or ensure that refugees' asylum claims are processed properly and people are not sent home. Can you give us maybe one example of, of how you went about doing that? Well, if you look at the Syria crisis, we were engaging with all the neighbors of Syria to ask them to allow the refugees in. And each uh, government was responding somewhat differently. Turkey, a G20 country, was saying, we can handle this. We can handle this ourselves. We're going to build uh, a network of camps along the border. And our messages to them was uh, we want to help, but our way of helping is through these humanitarian organizations, and we think you should rely on their expertise to inform uh, Turkish officials. And they initially wanted to do it all themselves, and then slowly they did allow some of uh, the best NGOs to come in and some UN professionals to provide that kind of exper uh, expertise and guidance. Uh, in Jordan, they were um, very focused on the fact that this was a third wave of refugees after Palestinians and Iraqis, and they wanted um, much more help from us. And, they, and this was all based on an existing, very close relationship between the U.S. government and the, uh, His Majesty's government in Jordan. And so there was a really firm basis to build from there. And in Lebanon, the country uh, was really— uh, was was did not want to build camps and yet was the destination for many, many refugees. And so the conversations in Lebanon where they have such a fractured government, very fragile uh, gov government, uh, was tricky. And I really relied on working very closely with the ambassadors to, to Lebanon to try to play a positive role and ended up meeting several prime ministers and getting to know the education minister and social affairs. And it got to the point where I was sort of a recognized person in both Jordan and Lebanon. When I came to town, I knew the journalists, I knew the ministers. We were developing really <laughs> close fruit. It, it wasn't that they were doing everything right. I would sometimes show up and have a, a list of uh, issues that I needed to talk through with them and work through with them. But there was a mutual respect and I, I'd like to think a certain degree of trust that they knew where I was coming from and that I was trying to make things better, situations better. 
So I've got to imagine, particularly in these contexts, that one of the really hard things to be doing when you're pursuing a humanitarian diplomacy is squaring humanitarian needs in first-stop countries with the other actions of the United States from a national security perspective. So when you're sitting with uh, the royal court in Jordan or the government in Lebanon or Turkey, and you're saying, well, please open your doors to literally millions of refugees who are flowing across your borders over the coming years, you're a part of the government that is simultaneously saying we're you know, going to intervene in Syria in this way and not intervene in this way. So maybe we're going to provide minimal support to rebel groups, uh, which we did, but not actually send troops on the ground. And in a way, we're the source and a major player in the arc of that conflict. And so how do you – how did you navigate that as, as the face of humanitarian diplomacy? Yeah, looking around the world, there were tricky situations. I mean, I remember going out to the Jordan-Syria border and doing that with the border guards, the border force, which had all this equipment from the U.S. Defense Department so that they had these night vision goggles and abilities to see who was out there. And what what the Defense Department was concerned about and what the Jordanian military was concerned about was bad guys coming over, you know, terrorists slipping in or um, attacks being made. Um, and this was not an unreasonable concern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I was concerned about was how were the refugees being treated when they came across the border. And, of course, the photo of an American that they had – in the main office of the the general was Evangelina Jolie when she had visited. So there's all sorts of different people. In the, in the people. general's room, there's a photo of Angelina Jolie. <laughs> yeah. And I say, okay, just, just, so, just making sure I from, heard from that one correctly. when she visited the same outfit. So we're, you, we're all you, up you, next. Don't worry. You realize that, you know, they're seeing lots of different faces of America and trying to get our messages across, you know, an important message across from um, a humanitarian standpoint uh, was, I thought, my priority. And it helped when I could get other senior officials, like when John Kerry took a helicopter and went out to um, Zatri camp and visited with the Jordanian foreign minister or, you know, went to um, Kenya and Nairobi and got, uh, spoke to students uh, from the Dadaab camp about their aspirations. I mean, it really helped when I didn't have to do it myself, but I had the local ambassador um, involved, and I had more senior people involved in the White House issuing statements. So it, it really has to be an administration-wide uh, priority, to, to I think, to make impact sometimes overseas. Were there many occasions then when you felt – um, there were competing national interests and that you had to fight your corner against other uh, potential demands. And I'm thinking um, from a European perspective, I think we're just talking about Turkey. That's a good example where I feel that the the interest those European countries had in basically avoiding people flowing into Europe took precedence over the humanitarian needs and values that probably many in the, uh, the European governments also were wedded to. Yeah, and in talking to... European colleagues, we wanted to be helpful to those whose initial instinct was to help the refugees and also respectful of the uh, political hot water they were wading into, Um, but at the same time not uh, give in to ideas that really uh, were detrimental to the welfare of refugees. Very 
tricky conversations, Ravi, that you have captured so well. The U.S. often is in a position of having different sort of wings of the State Department arguing against each other. I mean, you have people who are trying to promote trade with a country at the same time they're trying to shut down sweatshops in a country. Um, So it helps, I think, if you're seen as an aide to your senior people, if your messages are delivered not just by yourself but by the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, the President. I mean, I was fortunate in that sense to work for Barack Obama who – often was very eloquent on refugee issues. Um, but but there were um, tensions, certainly, uh, in certain places at certain times, trying to use the best advice of the ambassador of where you could make headway uh, with a, a contact and where it might be difficult. What do you feel like were the hardest questions to answer on this front? And one of the things I think about and one of the arguments that's being made about resettlement right now as the Trump administration reduces the numbers is that the diplomats like you are no longer able to credibly make requests on what other countries should be doing for refugees because, you know, we're also shouldering some burden or doing our share in some way. And so I, you that's, were, that's exactly where I went first was – when we ask countries to allow in thousands of refugees, they would say, how many are you taking? And if the answer was hundreds from this particular population, they would just laugh. And so um, – and, and when you see a country like uh, Lebanon taking in nearly a million people and we were taking in um, – uh, you know, striving for 85,000, that also seems very small – in comparison, especially with our country being so large. And um, so I would all, uh, sometimes push back and say, well, yes, but when they come to our country, we offer them uh, a permanent home and they can go on to be citizens, uh, which is not a complete even that, – that doesn't necessarily win the argument, but at least it's a little bit of a pushback. Mm-hmm. And then also talking about our aid and how we were, I felt, the backbone of the humanitarian system around the world, that we really were the top – top donor. What were the other hard ways in which you, get, you got pushed? Um, a lot of it was that, you know, you don't understand what it is he- like here. You don't understand our, our delicate government situation or, you know, our own people. If, if I went to Cameroon or Chad, Central African Republic, and said you have to help the refugees, you know, they're looking at me thinking, well, who's going to help our own citizenry? And so... One of the important messages that we developed over time, uh, which was not a novel idea but that we pushed it more, was let's get more aid to this country and let's make sure the local citizens benefit as well as the refugees. Let's make sure poor children uh, who uh, have been born here and are growing up here, no matter their origins, are getting a chance to go to school. So what President Obama did uh, was – in September of 2016, have a major conference at the United Nations during high-level week where um, uh, wealthy countries were asked to come if they were willing to uh, commit to more funding for humanitarian causes and to resettle refugees. And then countries that were hosting refugees were asked to allow the refugees to work legally and to allow children to go to school. And I tell you, some of uh, – I really focused on the, the hosting countries, 
because these were countries I had already visited or knew people from there. And um, it was pretty tricky uh, asking them to do more. Uh, they were right in saying, we have hosted refugees for decades, and now you're asking us to do more just because some have reached Europe. Uh, so, so that was a tough conversation. There was one um, Pakistani diplomat who told me it was that what I was asking was one of the most undiplomatic things he'd ever heard. Um, but, but, but the the president's intention was really good, which was the scale of this crisis is of such dimensions that we all have to do more than we have been doing. The other thing I was trying to do was to find uh, new donors, a new uh, countries that had not traditionally given money uh, to to get more engaged as part of this group of countries, Western Europe, U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, that year in and year out were funding much of the uh, humanitarian efforts of the international community. And many of us were trying to do this. We're trying to convince uh, wealthy Gulf states from the Persian Gulf or uh, any other countries that were at all inclined, you know, talking to Latin American countries, trying to see if there was a possibility that we could broaden the group of, of donors. And then the other piece was trying to get the private sector more interested. And that um, was tricky for me because I, I didn't have a background <laughs> working in the private sector. I'd worked with non-for-profits and with government and legislatures. So that also was one way, though, that we all knew we could broaden uh, the pool of resources being brought to bear to deal with this record-setting displacement. And when different countries said to you, it's just too difficult for us to accept more refugees because for whatever reason, it's going to be uh, impossible politically and we'll face a backlash, um, how did you know how far to push those different countries? Because often those arguments may well be true and it may well actually destabilise uh, an existing uh, government. But often it's just an excuse that people hide behind and are possibly using to maybe extract further um, concessions and, and money. So how difficult was it really to understand how ambitious but realistic to be in your demands? Well, sometimes the the people we were talking to would come straight out and say, you know, I'll admit that more refugees are on their way, but I don't want my public, I won't admit that to the public. I'll admit that to you privately, Anne, but I won't admit that to the public because that could really be disruptive if we say, or, or uh, another message was, we know the refugees aren't going home anytime soon, but we don't want to say that publicly. Um, and you know, from the point of view of managers of programs, if you know people aren't going home anytime soon, you set up a midterm or a long-term program. Uh, if politically everyone at the top is saying they're going to leave soon, mm -hmm. then you keep everything on a short-term emergency footing. And that's not a smart use of resources. Uh, if, it's much better to work with reality. This is one of the reasons that I actually think some of the requests around changing policies uh, for, of in countries for refugees are challenging, requesting the right to work, requesting the right to education, because they're really public. Um, they're really visible forms of changes for refugees. 
Whereas actually a lot of humanitarian programming is a lot less visible to host populations or to the people who are living in that country anyways. Whether there's an NGO operating and, you know, providing cash distributions or helping with, you know, different types of health care. Somebody who's been living there for years may not actually see that, whereas they, I think, see and hear kind of the announcements of uh, policies much more. And so I think about, you know, when can you provide and negotiate for private or less visible types of packages versus public-oriented packages? It seemed to me that the things that politicians felt were most controversial was any hint that uh, – the foreign-born were being privileged in some ways, getting something better than uh, the native-born. And so, you know, it's very tricky um, pushing uh, governments to allow children to go to school when it meant that the regular school day for local children was going to be shortened as they moved to double shifts or in some cases triple shifts. Uh, so that a new crop of students and teachers could come in. Um, and so that's when these, these local issues about who gets to use the facilities and who, who gets to benefit from uh, tax dollars, uh, that's where I think it really gets controversial pretty fast. You mentioned that quite a lot of funding and policy was designed to actually help those host communities and show that the the focus of attention wasn't just refugees. But do you think that that was ever perceived clearly by those host populations? Or could we have been more innovative in how we actually um, show that policy is actually trying to help a whole country rather than just an individual bunch of refugees? Well, certainly the recipient governments would uh, publicize any kind of contributions as something that was going to benefit everyone and that they had done their work and brought in help from overseas and from wealthy nations. I think you can distinguish between the perceptions that local populations have and there's a whole set of factors that influence what individuals' perceptions are of uh, humanitarian aid coming into a, a space. Um, and then there's a, a underlying question of are you trying to provide equitable aid to refugee populations who are coming in as well as local populations? Is equity the goal? Or is there some, you know, kind of uh, indexed relationship between how much you're giving to, you know, refugees versus local populations that's the right amount? And this is a really dominant conversation. Um, and I think that is happening right now across humanitarian aid, right? How do you adequately integrate programming and services to address local populations. And I think there's a lot of lip service that's done. Um, it's the, I think it's the thing that everybody knows is important. Um, but when you actually, you know, kind of start to get into the, the specifics or the details of it is when it gets, as you're saying, really controversial. And so from your perspective, what was your takeaways over time about how to think about whether is equity is the right goal in terms of aid, whether it needs to be indexed? Like, what do you think the concrete relationship should look well, like? Well, the thing I would say sometimes in speeches or to the press or in my um, bilateral meetings with a government um, minister would be, you know, I believe you should not be disadvantaged. You should not be penalized for having done the right thing. And generally, the person I was speaking to would say, right. 
<laughs> I, can get, I can get behind that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think part of the problem is that um, in the United States and many other governments in the United Nations system, uh, humanitarian programs are run through one set of stovepipes and development assistance, uh, longer-term development assistance, has got a different set of decision makers and offices and experts going out. And um, the Syria crisis was one of the first times that uh, we tried to break down the stovepipes and get, for example, experts in education to look at countries that had taken a lot of refugees and look at their educational systems and try to figure out how all the children in the country could be helped. The Sustainable Development Goals were different from the Millennium Development Goals in part because the focus was on everybody in a country, whether they were citizens or not. And the, and the understanding that went into them was if you have a lot of refugees or if you have camps and displaced persons and they're being left out of your healthcare programs or your economic growth programs, then you, your country is going to be held back. Uh, you have not reached everyone you need to reach. You shouldn't do it just based on citizenship papers. You should do it based on who's inside your country. So um, this, these were tricky conversations. Um, you know, I think most of the countries I was visiting, too, they've seen ambassadors come and go. They see government officials from different parties come and go. And so they look at you and they're wondering, you know, are you really going to stick with us? So that it helped me that I uh, was in my job for nearly five years because— I, I kept coming back to people. Mm -hmm. I didn't move on to another country and another um, um, set of issues the way many diplomats, uh, military officials, NGO country directors yeah. do. I remember I, uh, I just on that note, I worked in the Democratic Republic of Congo over the arc of 10 years for different periods of time. And it was like time three that I returned that government officials started taking me seriously. And it's so hard to underestimate it's so hard to estimate how important that is um, for credibility and the ability to actually move anything forward um, and which makes which makes all of these electoral cycles and political appointees at your level really challenging because the most you'll be in a role is eight years likely uh, yeah but that's a lot more than say the way Americans cycle through Afghanistan a year at a time so it is it, it, I think the more you can lodge these into some sort of consistent, approach, some sort of um, commitment, multi-year commitment, uh, the more respect we'll get from other countries. When you when you think about, um, you, you mentioned Afghanistan there, if you think about Afghanistan and Iraq, um, it was kind of painful to watch the same mistakes being made year after year after year as a new cadre of people came in with um, hopes that were no doubt about to be dashed very quickly. Um, to what extent did you, given the continuity um, at the headquarter level, help to try to um, preserve the organizational memory in key parts of the world where we, uh, we were interacting? Or is that something that you think is, is still a massive challenge? I do think, especially in both of those countries, Ravi, that um, it is a challenge uh, working in Afghanistan, working in Iraq. Um, what helped us was um, in the State Department was we actually had some foreign service officers who would uh, sign up as refugee coordinators 
uh, and work in one country, and then they would move to another. So they didn't have to start from complete scratch about learning the job and learning what worked well and learning the language. Um, but, you know, that's not always in their interest, uh, their long-term career interest to specialize like that in the United States government in humanitarian uh, um, uh, issues if you're a diplomat. Um, but we did have some people who just came to, to love the work. Um, I, I, you know, I think another thing we did was we were in constant conversation. I mean, I've talked about the diplomacy pieces mostly with other countries, but we were in constant conversations with the world's leading humanitarians, with the top UN officials uh, in New York uh, and also in Geneva. And, you know, I worked very closely with the previous and the current High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, and so, uh, and the head of the World Food Program. Um, and so we would try to ensure that um, donors were aligning behind the best possible approaches and the best possible uh, priorities and not be speaking with lots of different voices to the countries that were either hosting refugees or were uh, coping with crises uh, inside their borders. When you look back on your time with the Obama administration, what do you think were some of the biggest successes and some of the biggest failures on refugee policy? The successes were that we had a White House that cared about refugees and put in a lot of extra effort uh, to try to improve the situation. Um, they did it before I uh, was brought on board uh, during my predecessor's time. Eric Schwartz uh, was my predecessor. He's the first assistant secretary for Hillary Clinton for refugees. Um, you know, uh, first Eric was trying to make a lot of these programs, sort of have them up to date, make sure that the funding was solid. Um, and then also when two refugees uh, who had been from Iraq who were resettled in Kentucky were arrested for plotting to um, send uh, money and weapons back to Iraq, uh, the White House really focused on trying to deal with that situation very quickly so as not to lose the rest of the resettlement program. And uh, they instituted a number of steps to strengthen the vetting process. And um, this, this was really smart, and it was led by national security officials at the top who were also committed to having a resettlement program. And then I got to work with some of these folks uh, in the last couple of years of the Obama administration when the president decided we should bring many more refugees. But there continued to be this sense from Capitol Hill and then as the primaries heated up from certain presidential candidates on the right that uh, refugees were terrorists and they shouldn't be brought in and they couldn't be trusted. Um, and so the great success was that the president set out markers to do more, to lead the world on these issues, to do more overseas and to do more uh, domestically, and that many of those goals were accomplished. The downside is they didn't um, – they weren't permanent in that they were completely reversed then by the Trump administration coming in. The number of refugees being resettled has gone down. Uh, the relationships with other countries – are either uh, ignored in some cases or worsened. And certainly with uh, alliances, there's been a lot of uh, hostile rhetoric. 
Um, and then in, in the last several months, uh, we've seen that, uh, you know, certain uh, programs that my bureau at the time relied on, like funding the UN Population Fund to provide a lot of emergency uh, health care to women and children and, to, and see to their reproductive health needs in really tricky places. Uh, that funding was cut as soon as the Trump administration came in. And now we see the uh, administration has decided not to fund the UN agency that cares for Palestinian refugees. And so these really tough approaches to uh, organizations that were doing so much good, I find uh, shocking. I think that's, that's uh, a step backwards. And in terms of the personalities being put forward for these top humanitarian jobs, it's very, very uneven. Um, Ken Isaacs, who's someone I've worked with in the past but had been caught tweeting out anti-Muslim sentiments was put forward as uh, the U.S. candidate to run the International Organization for Migration. He did not win the election for that. Which uh, is pretty radical. I it think it's worth noting that like usually you put forward those types of candidates and it's a quick accession. It had been a job that always went to an American and now a Portuguese uh, um, uh, a minister will be coming in to run IOM. Uh, the person who's been nominated for my job uh, – Ronald Mortensen is someone who's anti-immigrant, and I just don't see how this person is going to engage on these issues in a constructive way. Uh, so it's it's been really I think the community of people who care about helping refugees in the U.S. and around the world has really been let down by the the new administration. And you mentioned that many of those changes have been reversed or undone. Was there anything you could have done to try to lock in some of the reforms institutionally or uh, was it always bound to get unraveled by this administration? Well, so let me actually come in there as well because I think one of the interesting things, particularly on refugee resettlement right now, is that a lot – the primary – decider of how many refugees come into this country is the president. And like, you know, the president consults with Congress, but ultimately it's the pre it's presidential authority. And so one way of thinking about resettlement is that the reason it's fragile is not necessarily because public sentiments changed, but because the decision-making process rests with one person um, more so than most other decisions. You could go back to 2016 and basically say if you had run the election the next day or if you know tens of thousands of voters in the Rust Belt voted a different way, we'd be living in a really different world and have really different feelings about refugee resettlement. And I just wonder if we would actually be as concerned about the state of resettlement if one of those minor things changes, which is a real function of the fragility of actually the institutional process rather than something broader. And it's something I, I – uh, contend with because I'm not quite sure how to think about it. It goes to Ravi's question is, are these things that we should lock in more? Should we change the institutional processes? Are there something deeper there? How do you feel about these things? Well, I think the starting point should be that for decades, Republicans and Democrats supported uh, opening our borders to allow in refugees who were fleeing persecution. Um, part of this may have been – part of this bipartisanship may have uh, come out of the fact that everyone was fighting communism and a lot of the refugees were fleeing communist dictatorships. And um, so there, there was no disagreement on the importance of taking these folks in. 
Um, so I've been quite shocked by uh, how this tradition has is now not respected by people in the White House and certain people in Congress and the Justice Department uh, and DHS. But it's it's not mo- monolithic right now. The Democratic Party, by and whole, uh, by and large, is is supportive of refugees and immigrants in lots of different ways. Republican Party is split, and it's not just the president. Um, and there are Republicans who would like a return to that bipartisanship. There are Republicans who fund refugee programs, who vote for the humanitarian assistance programs. Um, and so they may disagree with this or that piece of a program, but that overall they were comfortable with this tradition of um, a tradition that, for example, both presidents George Bush had um, had maintained of uh, offering sanctuary to people who sought asylum in the United States. So it's the what, what's concerning, I think, is that not only did Donald Trump pick on refugees and migrants uh, in his campaign uh, statements, but then that he found that that um, was a cost-free campaign rhetoric that fired up crowds. And that demonstrated then to other candidates that they could use that language um, and, uh, you know, use some of this ugly language uh, to to, uh, insult and malign the foreign-born people trying to get to this to this country, and so that's the kernel of that. It's not just one person; it's a broader, it, it's a broader group, and it's um, it's not a majority of Americans, but it it is a group that has had some influence, I think, with uh, very uh, far right-wing members of the Republican Party. So to pull it back out just a, a bit, I was uh, in preparation for this reading a graduation speech that you gave at the Elliott School the other year when you're putting some of the anti-refugee sentiment in historical context. And, um, you know, quoting from you, you say, you know, in earlier times, Irish immigrants were discriminated against and then Southern Europeans. The Chinese Exclusion Act suspended immigration from China for six decades. Japanese Americans were under suspicion and interned during World War II. Jewish refugees were turned away during World War II, and those from Eastern Europe and Russia were mistrusted during the Cold War, suspected of being Soviet spies. Majorities of Americans were concerned by Hungarian refugees fleeing in the 1950s, Southeast Asian refugees fleeing in the 1970s, and, and Cubans in the 1980s. And so one of the debates that's come to dominate the Trump era is how bad everything is. And I think that one of the things that you're pointing at is that when you look historically, the way that we've acted hasn't actually been that fantastic, that maybe that this is just the continuation of an awful history. So when you look at this moment and you look at the history of how Americans have engaged with refugees, is this a real departure? Is this really different? Well, I think what's different between now and then is that in previous eras, cooler heads uh, would prevail. And so you'd hear anti-immigrant or anti-refugee rhetoric, but um, smart people would uh, look at this and say, we can do this. And you would see senior leaders in Washington um, vote to allow people to come in. Um, And I think what's different now is that you have uh, people in the White House and in uh, 
the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, and others uh, in Congress that, you know, repeat some of the worst um, of uh, the sort of ugly talk about the threat that foreign-born people uh, present to Americans instead of talking about universal values and our responsibilities and having learned from history that we should provide uh, asylum for people who are fleeing uh, near certain death. What to you has been the most surprising part about the way the Trump administration's policies or approach to immigration has changed in ways that you actually think is less visible um, that may not necessarily be written about as much, but that actually is the way that things are being shaped and, and changed? Well, a lot of the things the Trump administration is doing is without uh, seeking and securing legislation to make these changes. So a lot's being done by executive order um, or just by, um, you know, the Domestic Policy Council at the White House led by Stephen Miller sort of sending out the message uh, that, that then without much really uh, serious debate, uh, leads to changes in how uh, rules and laws are uh, interpreted and um, carried out. And so it's been um, f- fairly shocking how successful uh, a small group of people can be. With, and, and they're not holding Senate-confirmed positions, so they're not necessarily going up to the Hill uh, and having nomination uh, confirmation hearings, and they're not um, uh, providing testimony. It's just sort of all happening uh, behind the scenes. One of the decisions that that small group of people are making is the number of refugees who will come in next year. And the executive decree should be coming out at the end of this September, quite close to when this podcast is released. And I'm interested in in how you think we should interpret different outcomes on the ultimate number and what should be considered a good or a bad outcome. It's hard to see a good outcome coming out of the current uh, discussion. Everything's relative these days. <laughs> um, uh, I guess a good outcome would be that we would continue to take refugees in the United States. Um, you know, I mentioned that for several years when I was assistant secretary, we sought to bring and we brought 70,000 refugees to the United States. And then the president asked us, President Obama asked us to bring more to bring 85,000, and we achieved that with a lot of help from the not-for-profit partner organizations that are involved in that and the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And uh, then um, as the president's, um, President Obama's tenure was coming to an end, he said our target for the following year should be 110,000. Trump administration came in and instantly lowered that uh, they wanted to bring only 50,000. They brought 53,000. They set out a lower target for the following year. For this year that we're in, 45,000. And in fact, the numbers that come are probably closer to 20,000. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's expected is that some number like that will emerge from the White House again. You know, it's to some in Washington and maybe to some journalists, this is a numbers game. For me, I think about those tens of thousands of people, the families that cannot live or thrive where they are. They're caught in these sort of limbo situations. Maybe they're people who 
have acute medical needs that come from something that happened to them as they fled war. Maybe these are torture victims. Maybe they're people who are LGBT and they don't feel safe even in a refugee camp. Um, and so all of these folks could start their lives over and be in a much safer place and thrive in the United States, but they're going to be kept out um, because of this uh, bias against uh, refugees. It it just is um, terrible. It will affect real people, real lives. When you look at this moment, I'm curious what you think the next progressive agenda on refugee assistance should look like, given that public opinion on immigration and refugees have changed and that support for these populations are reducing. Um, so what's a what's an agenda, what's a vision that you think is not solely a return to where, what we were doing before, but that is actually a departure and change that takes seriously some of the changing public opinion? Well, I don't think this has to be a progressive agenda item. I'd like to see it be a base for everyone running for office, that they start out by saying we are a nation of uh, refugees and immigrants and we should remain that way. Um, so I'd love to see a backlash against all this anti-foreigner sentiment, the anti-Muslim sentiment, you know, the sense that anybody coming from Central America must be uh, MS-13 and a Mexican's a rapist. I'd love to see a backlash against that and people hold uh, office seekers to a much higher standard. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll certainly be pushing uh, candidates to the extent I can in my small way to, uh, you know, not speak in such a hateful way. I'd like to see Americans uh, really, you know, stop tolerating that from from candidates for office. And when you think about how to actually go about making the right case for refugees, um, what advice have you got about how to do that persuasion? Because it feels sometimes that our strategy is sometimes to yell louder and demand change, and that often seems counterproductive. Um, so tactically, what should we be doing? It seems to me that the most persuasive thing is for individuals to meet refugees. <laughs> Once people see refugees and how hard what they've lived through and how hard they're working and that they want the same things the rest of us want you know peace and security a future for our families the kids are cute the grandparents are wise i mean the more that can be uh, demonstrated to ordinary Americans who haven't come across refugees, the better. And so I know that journalists have tried to do this by providing, um, you know, uh, uh, feature stories uh, that, that portray who the refugees are and that editors then say, well, what's the news angle on this? What's new? So maybe it's something that it has to be show up more in popular film and television, you know, these simple stories of what simple but very moving um, and arduous at times stories of what people have gone through. I think, um, you know, maybe less didactic documentaries and more, you know, really beautiful artwork um, uh, that shows who the refugees are and what they've done and what they've accomplished would perhaps, um, you know, touch Americans who, on any ordinary day, think of themselves as good people, generous people, um, you know, open 
people. Um, but we've got to get away from all the hateful rhetoric, this idea that anyone who's dark-skinned with a beard is a terrorist. Uh, that's, just, that's just not a good outcome right now. Anne Richard, thank you so much for being on Displaced. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. And and just as an additional center, your daughter listens to this podcast, right? My daughter Ellie said, Mom, you got to listen to this Displaced podcast. It's really good. And so um, thank you for uh, mentioning more, Ellie. She's more, she's one of your fans. More mother-daughter <laughs> duos coming on. <laughs> we appreciate it. Excellent. And Richards, thanks so much. Thank you. much for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Drop us a note at displaced at rescue.org or tweet at us. I'm at Grant M. Gordon and Ravi is I'm at Al Murthy, I think. Start a conversation. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. Send us uh, any thoughts on who you'd like to see on the show, what you think about the show, favorite foods, uh, suggestions on hot sauces. We'll, we'll listen to anything. Mm, okay. Um, without further ado, <laughs> can I just say thank you to a load of people? So thanks a lot to people at IRC for helping us make this. Alex Bandea, uh, Catherine Long, and Ben Moskowitz. And a huge thank you to our crew at Vox, associate producer Jelani Carter, our executive producer Nishat Kurwa, Golda Arthur. I can't ever remember what she does, but she really helps us out. And engineers Griffin Tanner and Jarrett Floyd. Thank you very much for listening. We're back next week.